This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Young Turks, The Green News Report, On the Media, Counterspin, Moyers and Company, Mike Tidwell from the Chesapeake Climate Action Network, Activism from Best of the Left, and the Tom Hartman program. And a quick note that this episode is not about saving the world. To be clear, it's not the world that needs saving. So President Obama, look at this, doing some good things for the environment, cleaning up greenhouse gases a little bit, credit where credit is due, announced today the EPA has taken action. Now you have to understand before this they've already uh, started to do some significant work towards reducing the amount of carbon we're putting in the air. Uh, they had started with first automobiles and trucks limiting the emissions there, then uh, they put in n- n- rules for new coal power plants. So if you're gonna build a new one, here are the new rules that go along with it so you put less carbon pollution into the air. Today's rules are about existing power plants. See, now that's much more bold because those power plants are used to making a certain amount of money, right? And so they wanna keep on making that money. So when you put in new rules, oh, they don't like that. Uh, so let me tell you what it, uh, the current situation is. First of all, the reason you have to do it with these coal power plants is because they are responsible, and this is amazing, for 39% of total emissions in the country. Those are the existing power plants. So that's a giant chunk of the carbon that we put in the air. So if you don't address that, well, then you're really kidding yourself about the effectiveness of your campaigns. Now, the good news is that emissions have already declined 10% between 2005 and 2012, so we've already done some good work here, partly because of the increase in natural gas uh, through fracking, so everything's got upsides and downsides, um, but also solar and wind, etc., and some of the new rules. And finally, uh, in terms of what it was, our commitment was to reduce by 17% the emissions put out by the year 2020. Well, now by doing the new rules, we're gonna be in much better shape to do that. So what are the new rules? The rules direct states to cut greenhouse gas emissions from power plants 30% by 2030 using emissions from a 2005 as a baseline. So actually progressives don't love that part. You're going back to 2005 and then saying, let's get 30% from there. And I just told you we already got 10%. So that means the additional benefits are gonna be about 20% more. It's more than President Obama has done in the past, so I'll take it, and it's definitely good news, but at the same time, he's allowing states to find different ways to get to that goal. It might delay the process, especially in red states, especially in coal states, and you know, by moving the baseline, it's a little less impressive. Now, uh, they claim that this will have, the administration does, $90 billion in climate and health benefits. Uh, of course, the Chamber of Commerce, totally disagrees, they flip out and they say the opposite, they say that it will cost $50 billion a year and it'll cost 224,000 jobs. Okay, uh, I don't quite believe either estimate. $90 billion in health uh, benefits is an awful lot, that would be great if we got that. Uh, the Chamber of Commerce, of course, is completely biased. They wanna keep business as usual, quite literally, and have no interest in costing any of their companies an extra dime, so they exaggerate to no end about how many jobs will be quote-unquote lost. Now, President Barack Obama, undeterred by this uh, during his radio address over the weekend, said, we limit the amount of toxic chemicals like mercury, sulfur, and arsenic that power plants put in our air and our water, but they can dump unlimited amounts of carbon pollution into the air. It's not smart, 
it's not safe, and it doesn't make sense. So those are strong comments and smart comments, so I'm in favor of that. Of course, if you're going to do that, then the Republicans are going to respond by going to the other extreme, and they're going to say, uh, and it's not to say that President Obama's position is extreme, I'm just saying that he makes a perfectly sensible point, so they're going to make a perfectly nonsensical point. He says, President Obama's out to kill coal, and it's 800,000 jobs. It's funny how that number kind of quadrupled overnight. Chamber of Commerce says around 200,000 jobs. Mike Enzi, uh, Republican senator, comes out and says, 800,000 jobs are going to disappear for a they kill with a murder goal. Okay, what's the reality? Uh, as progressives are happy, but a little cautious about uh, the change here, not quite as big as some wanted. And conservatives, of course, are livid that anything would ever change uh, for their coal and fossil fuel friends. The answer is, Given President Obama's context, whew, I will take it and run. <laughs> you know, look, it's it, his second term has been a little bit more progressive than his first term. Credit where credit is due. In the first term, we got about five percent change, if you ask me. In the second term, we're getting about twenty-five percent. Now, look, this is all dancing around the edges because unless you fix the system of how all these laws get put into place in the first place, which I think you do through getting money out of politics, and yes, wolf-pack.com, that's your first reference of the day. Uh, that's how you get money out of politics. But So what he's doing is playing around the edges of a game that he's not going to change. He said he was going to change the game, he's not. But at least going from 5% to 25%, that's an improvement. And now we've got new rules that limit carbon pollution to some degree, and uh, and it builds on some of the success we've had since 2005, my overall conclusion is, I'll take it. Okay, Desi Doyen, Republican Speaker of the House, John Boehner, said this the other day when asked about climate change. Well, listen, I'm not qualified to debate the science over climate change. So he wasn't qualified to discuss it in 2014, but long ago, before the Citizens United case, John Boehner said... The fact is, is that we have had climate change. Uh, clearly, uh, humans have something to do with it. So way back when, Republicans were more than happy to recognize what everybody knows about science, but uh, something uh, changed since then, eh? Yeah, I wonder what that could be. But we'll have more on that in a moment. First, as we reported earlier this week, this week, the Environmental Protection Agency proposed the first ever standards to reduce carbon pollution from power plants, the nation's single largest source of the greenhouse gas emissions that cause dangerous global warming. Immediately, polluters and their friends in Congress launched a massive PR campaign to stop those new pollution standards. Here's Republican Senator Rand Paul of Cole State, Kentucky on Fox News. If it comes a really cold day in January and there's not enough heat, you know who you can blame. The Democrats tried to pass it and they didn't have enough votes, so now they're going to try to do this through executive edict. And I don't think that's legal. Rand Paul either doesn't know or doesn't care that the new emission standards are required by law through the Clean Air Act. 
passed by a previous Congress and through multiple Supreme Court decisions. President Obama used executive authority because Republicans in Congress have blocked all other pollution legislation, including the 2009 cap-and-trade bill, even though that bill was based on a Republican cap-and-trade proposal from the 2008 presidential campaign. So to be clear here, the law requires the EPA to put these regulations in place. The EPA is part of the executive branch. Barack Obama is following the law in issuing these regulations as directed by the Supreme Court, and Rand Paul is furious about it calls it illegal. Yep, but they didn't always say that. Here's John McCain from 2008. I've been to Greenland. I've been to the South Pole. I've been to the Arctic. I know it's real. I've been involved in this effort for many years, and we've got to act. And here's Mike Huckabee. I think we ought to have some cap and trade. And we ought to declare that we will be uh, oil-free of energy consumption in this country within a decade. And for good measure, here's Mitt Romney. You're seeing climate change. I think human activity is contributing to it. Oh, and don't forget Sarah Palin. I believe that man's activities certainly can be contributing to the issue of global warming, climate change. So all of that was before 2010, before the Citizens United decision, before the Koch brothers and the oil companies was allowed to purchase the Republican Party lock, stock, and barrel. Yep. And not to put too fine a point on it, but the EPA's new emission standards are actually less stringent than the plan put forward by candidate John McCain in 2008. Earlier this week, the Environmental Protection Agency rolled out the Obama administration's ambitious proposal to drastically cut carbon pollution from power plants by the year 2030. This plan cuts carbon pollution by building a clean energy economy, using more clean energy, less dirty energy, and wasting less energy throughout our economy. More clean energy, less dirty energy. Put that way, how can you say no? especially when real action is needed to solve the pressing problem of, uh, what do you call it, climate change, man-made climate change, global warming, global weirding. Leaving aside which is most accurate, which term is most likely to inspire policies to confront the problem? or not confront it. In 2002, Republican strategist Frank Luntz sent a secret memo to the Bush White House asking that very question, and, of course, answering it. Here's Luntz in a 2006 CBC documentary. Global warming suggests something more cataclysmic. Climate change suggests something more gradual, something that takes place over time. Global warming is more frightening. Climate change is less so. So the Bush administration effectively banned the term global warming and replaced it with climate change. Now, 12 years later, the media pretty much used the terms interchangeably. But maybe they shouldn't. Anthony Leiserwitz is the director of the Yale Project on Climate Change Communication and a chief researcher of the new study, What's in a Name, Global Warming versus Climate Change. He was trying to gauge the relative power of each phrase on the general public. What we found is that the terms really do seem to still elicit very different kinds of reactions. The term global warming led to greater certainty that the phenomenon is happening, greater understanding that human activities are the primary cause, 
and greater worry about the issue, including a sense of personal threat. And that was true not just across the whole country, but even among specific subgroups like Hispanics or liberals or Generation X or Generation Y. So while the terms are often used interchangeably by the media, by politicians, by scientists, among the general public, the two terms don't yet quite mean the same thing. Now, obviously, this terminology has political ramifications, how people respond to different ways of phrasing the same problem, but not necessarily the obvious implications. Mm -hmm. uh, for example, there was a feeling in the advocacy community that it was better to talk to Republicans using the less loaded term in order to keep their attention. You researched this phenomenon. That's right, and we still found that Republicans engage this issue more when it's called global warming. It generated stronger feelings that this is a bad thing, stronger perceptions that they are personally or that their own family is personally at threat, and even to believe that global warming is already affecting weather in the United States. So it does suggest among Republicans as well as the rest of the country that, again, the term global warming just still is more engaging. Now, one of the apparent effects of global climate change is a lot of severe weather. And I wonder if you investigated whether the ongoing devastation of more frequent tropical storms, tornadoes, drought, and so forth, skew perceptions in one direction or another in terms of language choice. About 8 out of 10 Americans tell us that they have personally experienced one or more natural weather disasters in the past couple years. And moreover, a third of Americans say that they've been personally harmed by one or more of these events. We ask Americans, what's the first word or phrase that comes to mind when you hear global warming or climate change? We knew that climate change was generally more strongly associated with changes in weather. But when we looked within people's associations to that, we nonetheless found that global warming was actually much more strongly associated with references to extreme weather. So weather disasters, hurricanes, tornadoes, etc. Those were still much more likely to be associated with global warming than they were with climate change. One of the problems with communicating the idea of the stakes of global climate change is ideology, belief systems that simply do not square with reality, with data, with scientific evidence. People have their minds set and aren't really fixing to change them. In that environment, does a choice of terminology really matter? Throughout many years of our work, we've identified a phenomenon that's called, in psychology, motivated reasoning. That there are some people who are so convinced that climate change is here and happening and is such an enormously serious problem. And then at the other end of the spectrum, you have those who dismiss the reality and the seriousness, and in fact, many of them think it's a hoax. Those two extremes of the people who are really, really worried about it and those people who think it's a hoax, they've already made up their minds very, very strongly. And so new information that contradicts what they already believe is highly unlikely to be accepted. And it's not because they're worried about the problem itself. What they're worried about is the potential policy solution because it is the ultimate collective action problem. I mean, as important it is for all of us to take our own individual actions of reducing energy at home and on the road and insulating your attic and doing all those good things, which are part of the solution, 
in the end, voluntary action is not going to solve this. It's going to require state-level action, national action, and yes, global coordinated action. And to people with this deeply individualistic worldview, that's fighting words. So if you're talking to, for instance, someone who is convinced that climate change is a hoax and a big conspiracy, it doesn't matter what you call it. Have you come up with another coinage that might replace climate change and global warming, something maybe all-inclusive and yet more terrifying? There have been a number of alternatives proposed. Some people prefer the term climate disruption or climate chaos, or Tom Friedman has promoted global weirding as an example. But in the end, I don't believe we're going to change out and replace the term climate change or global warming in most people's minds. If you were Coca-Cola and you wanted to come up with a new name for your soft drink, you'd have to spend billions of dollars and it would take decades of hard work to get people to stop using the term Coke and switch over to a new term. For better or for worse, we've been using the terms global warming and climate change for decades. And so... You know, the idea that we can just simply change the term and that's going to suddenly change the way the world as a whole responds to this issue, I think is highly unlikely. I don't know. Frank Luntz made quite a career doing that. In fact, let me go Luntz in on you. Ready, Anthony? <laughs> Death weather. <laughs> oh, my. I'm not going to endorse that. <laughs> Scholars. So annoyingly rigorous. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you, Bob. May 4th report on congressional debates over the Keystone XL pipeline, the Washington Post's Paul Kane opines that, quote, the pipeline's political mythology runs up against the reality of its significance in the energy universe, close quote. Both advocates and critics, it seems, are exaggerating the politically symbolic project's importance. Even the rosiest estimates, Kane points out, predict just 9,000 jobs would be created, not a game-changer, as advocates might have had you believe. And as for environmentalists' worry about the 830,000 barrels of oil going through the proposed pipeline, well, quote, the first three phases of Keystone pipelines have already been approved and have the capacity to deliver 1.3 million barrels a day through a longer route to the Gulf Coast, close quote. The precise point of this comparison is unclear. 9,000 jobs is indeed a small percentage of a single month's job growth, about 3%. Keystone XL will increase the Keystone pipeline capacity by about 64% per day. That's why they call it XL. But really, the more important number would be not the capacity of the pipeline, but the amount of carbon in the Canadian tar sands deposits that the pipeline is intended to drain. That's 240 gigatons, enough to add 120 parts per million of carbon dioxide to the atmosphere if burned, as much again as the Industrial Revolution has managed to add over the past 150 years. 
That's why climatologist James Hansen says if tar sands exploitation isn't stopped, it's game over for the climate. But as in so many Keystone stories, the words climate change do not appear in this clever equation of environmental concerns with Republican job numbers that turns out not to be all that clever. scientist David Suzuki was here to tell us what he thinks should happen to politicians who ignore or deny evidence that the earth is heating up. Our politicians should be thrown in the slammer for willful blindness. If we are in a position of being able to act and we see something going on and we refuse to acknowledge the threat or act on it, we can be taken to court for willful blindness. I think that we are being willfully blind to the consequences for our children and grandchildren. It's an intergenerational crime. The problem is, if that should happen, if politicians were to be convicted of willful blindness to the fate of the earth and future generations, there would have to be mass arrests and lots more funding for new prisons. We're not talking about a mere handful of culprits. It's hard even to know where to start. Perhaps with Marco Rubio, Republican senator from Florida. Back when he was a state legislator, Rubio favored cutting carbon emissions that contribute to global warming. But now he's thinking about running for president in 2016 and has changed his tune, as ABC's Jonathan Carl learned this past weekend. I do not believe that human activity is causing these dramatic changes to our climate the way these scientists are portraying it. That's what I do not, and I do not believe that the laws that they propose we pass will do anything about it, except it will destroy our economy. As Paul Waldman wrote in the Washington Post this week, just about every potential candidate yearning for the Republican nomination publicly questions the scientific evidence of global warming. Among them, Ted Cruz, who says the last 15 years there has been no recorded warming. Bobby Jindal decries global warming as left-wing environmental theory. Rick Santorum calls climate change a beautifully concocted scheme. And Rand Paul says, the Earth's 4.5 billion years old, and you're going to say we had four hurricanes, and so that proves a theory? These contenders have plenty of company, including the Republican leader of the Senate, Mitch McConnell of Coleridge, Kentucky, who says he doesn't buy climate change and regularly scorns President Obama for talking about the weather. Republican Representative Dana Rohrabacher says global warming is a total fraud. And he's from California, where every inch of the state is under siege from epic heat and drought. Then there's Representative Joe Barton, former GOP chair of the House Energy and Commerce Committee, who hails from Texas, which, the story goes, was created in only one day by the Almighty, who spent the rest of the week drilling for oil. 
Smokey Joe Barton says that Noah's great flood is an example of climate change, and that certainly wasn't because mankind had overdeveloped hydrocarbon energy. I'm not making this up. They really say these things. But they're not actually stupid. Playing dumb is just their game. To appease the base of Tea Party Republicans who watch only Fox News and don't really know better. And, of course, to keep the campaign contributions rolling in from the fossil fuel companies and predatory billionaires. But haul these fellows up on charges of willful blindness, and I'll wager they would all take the fifth. No one knows the ways politicians undermine action to stop global warming better than David Suzuki. This geneticist and zoologist, author and broadcaster, is known to many as the godfather of the environmental movement. Since 1979... He's hosted the Canadian TV series, The Nature of Things, making science understandable and entertaining to audiences around the world. In his native Canada, he's fought hard against those science deniers in positions of power who have turned a blind eye to the future and the truth. Welcome back, David. Thank you. It's good to be here. You once believed that if people were showed the valid science about global warming, they would understand. You were wrong about that. No. It's not the case that you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. Yes, the discussion platform has been very, very badly polluted. I really did believe in my whole life. I had did my first television series in 1962, when even you were a young man, too. And my belief was and still is that if we can have a conversation about the, the facts that ultimately we can make uh, the proper decisions. Well, it's a much more complicated affair. And what I'm realizing now is that as long as we carry on the conversation within a frame that is dictated by economics, then we're going to lose every time. And again, let me tell you a story. I, many years ago, the Lytton Indian Band, they called themselves, uh, came to me and said, our government has given a permit to log our sacred valley. The sacred valley is now called the Stein Valley. Uh, they gave a, a permit to Fletcher Challenge, a New Zealand forest company. And we don't want any logging to take place. So I said, okay, but before I, I work with you, I'd like to see what you're fighting to protect. So I took my family. We went camping in the valley for five days. And it's a magnificent valley. So as we were coming out, we met a big party of people and the women were all dressed in high heels and dresses and the men in suits and ties and I, I said, this is not a camping party. Uh, but you know, anybody on the trail you talk to and so very quickly, uh, I realized, holy smokes, this is a CEO of Fletcher Challenge. And very quickly he realized, oh my God, this is that troublemaker David Suzuki. Thank and you. Thank uh, you. <laughs> so we got into, uh, let's say a heated discussion. And finally, he said in frustration, listen, Suzuki, are tree huggers like you willing to pay to protect those trees? Because if you're not willing to pay for them, they don't have any value to someone cuts them down. And that was a big insight for me because I realized, holy cow, you know, he, it's, he's absolutely right. In his world, he could get, tell me how many jobs will come, how many board feet of lumber, how many cubic meters of, of pulp, uh, how much profit can be made out of there. And what do I do? If I'm arguing in his frame and say, well, gee, you, every year we can pick a few berries and uh, there are some salel bushes that we could use for flower arrangement and maybe we could find a cure for cancer. Like, 
we have no chance against that argument if we stay within an economic frame. Because the real reason we're fighting for the forest is that it's taking carbon out of the atmosphere and putting oxygen back in it. Not a bad service for an animal like us. But economists don't have a place for that in their construct. Well, how would you expect otherwise when, as you point out, the fossil fuel industry has deliberately embarked on a program to cast doubt yes. on the science of global warming? They say you and others like you are practicing junk science, and they are winning the propaganda. In the United States. In the United States. Yes, that has worked. What we do know from the magnificent book, Merchants of Doubt, Merchants of doubt. you sow doubt. And since the 1990s, the fossil fuel industry has known, just as the tobacco industry knew years before they finally admitted it, that smoking caused cancer. The fossil fuel industry knows that fossil fuel use is at the heart of climate change. But now the problem is their job as CEOs and executives is to make money for their shareholders, and they'll do it. And if they begin to frame the discussion a different way, the chances are they'll be booted out of their position. So they've got no choice. The paradox, as you speak, is that I saw a poll that said almost 90% of Canadians really take global warming Absolutely. seriously and know that we contribute to it, and yet their government is taking actions that are in direct contradiction to their understanding of global warming. Yes. The citizens understand. Our government has come down hard. So environmentalists are called enemies of Canada. By the Prime Minister? By the Prime Minister while his mouthpieces, his various uh, ministers. We are called uh, radical, uh, radical extremists. We had one minister who said, you have these extremist terrorists like uh, bin Laden and environmentalists. So that's how we're being demonized by being lumped in as terrorists. And this is a very effective thing. That we know that it's been done by the tobacco industry. It was done by, it's being done by the fossil fuel industry. If you attack a person on the basis of their trustworthiness, uh, their uh, ulterior motives, anything to get away from dealing with what the issues they're raising then, oh, but those darn scientists, they keep speaking out, so shut them down. We have fired a huge number of scientists working for Environment Canada. Well, I did read that the government, your government has closed libraries in the Department in of the Oceans and... Uh, Fisheries and Oceans. Fisheries and Oceans. That's and right. Actually thrown out manuscripts into the garbage. I mean, that's like the burning of books. Exactly, exactly. And they muzzled the scientists that work for the government. A scientist cannot go out and talk to the public about what they are finding in their area of expertise. They have to go through the government and be vetted by the government in terms of what they can say. That really sends a chill through the scientific community because other scientists who aren't working for government but are in universities depend on government grants in order to carry out their research much more cautious in, in speaking out. It sends a chill and that really scares me because if you can't have scientists telling you what the, the grounds, the scientific information is on various issues, who then do we go to for the authority? Do we go to the Bible? Do we go to the Quran? Do we go to these right-wing think tanks? In Canada, we have the Fraser Institute, a very right-wing think tank that gets a lot of play in the press. Is that what our source is going to be? That's 
why it's really important to me that scientists not only be freed, but be recognized as the most authoritative source of information on these various issues. And there was a Gallup poll in this country a few weeks ago that said despite rising temperatures and all of this strange weather we've been having, the percentage of Americans who care a great deal about global warming mm. has been dropping mm. from 41% uh, six years ago to 34% today. What is it about human nature that wants to believe the worst can't happen? I, I don't know. I don't know. But I will tell you this. We think, or at least the science indicates, humans evolved. And I know in the United States the word evolution is, is loaded with all kinds of triggers. But in Canada, we use evolution all the time because people accept it. The science suggests we evolved in Africa 150,000 years right. ago. And for 95% of our existence, we were nomadic hunter-gatherers. We had to follow plants and animals through the seasons. When you're a hunter-gatherer, you know darned well you are utterly dependent on nature for your well-being and survival. 10,000 years ago, we begin this big transition from hunter-gatherer to farmer. Agricultural revolution ushers in this huge change. Now we don't have to follow. We can raise our food right where we live. And in 1900, there were about one and a half billion people in the world. Only 14 cities with more than a million people. Most people still lived in rural village communities because most people were involved in some aspect of agriculture. Come ahead 100 years to 2000. Now there are four times as many people, six billion people. More than 400 cities with a million people or more. Now in Amer North America, the vast majority of people live in big cities. And in a big city, it's easy to think, well, as long as we have parks out there somewhere where we can camp and fish and play, who needs nature? In, you know, in a city, my most highest priority is my job. And, you know, the average child in Canada today spends eight minutes a day outside mm -hmm. and over six hours a day in front of a television computer or cell phone screen. So when you're living that way, who needs nature? Who even worries about the weather unless there's a tornado or, or some kind of uh, freak event? And so we act as if these things are really not relevant to the way we live. I remember when William Nordhaus, one of the giants in economics at Yale, said, oh, the impact of global warming is trivial economically. And uh, I think that it's... We now know that's not the case. Of course, right. of course. See, young kids often ask me, Mr. Suzuki, uh, how can I save the world? And I, I say to them, well, look, the world's not in trouble. We're in trouble, but the world's not in trouble. So don't worry about the world.
Watch out, the Coctopus is growing a new tentacle. The Daily Beast reports that the billionaire Koch brothers are adding a new nonprofit front group to their shadowy network of big money nonprofit front groups to kill off clean energy. The new strategy includes a super PAC that plans to spend at least $15 million in the 2014 midterm elections alone just on attacking climate change activists and undermining the EPA's new emissions pollution standards. They're going to attempt to convince Americans that dirty energy is the best energy. Oh, bring it on, Cokes. And remember, polluting industries and their friends in Congress always cry wolf about pollution regulations, and they're always wrong. A new study by the Federal Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs, which reports on the economic impact of federal regulations, that new study finds that major EPA standards implemented just since 2003 have yielded a minimum of $215 billion in economic benefits, two to three times the cost of any of those measures. Finally, President Obama is now openly mocking the climate change denial industry and their friends in Congress. It's pretty rare that you'll encounter somebody who says the problem you're trying to solve simply doesn't exist. When President Kennedy set us on a course for the moon, there were a number of people who made a serious case that it wouldn't be worth it. It was going to be too expensive, it was going to be too hard, it would take too long. But nobody ignored the science. I don't remember anybody saying that the moon wasn't there or that it was made of cheese. <laughs> Today's Congress, though, is full of folks who stubbornly and automatically reject the scientific evidence about climate change. They will tell you it is a hoax or a fad. One member of Congress actually says the world is cooling. There was one member of Congress who mentioned a theory involving dinosaur flatulence, which I won't get into, but... Wow, who spiked his coffee today? I know. That was his commencement speech to the University of California, Irvine, over the weekend. He devoted the entire speech to the danger of man-made climate change. He announced a new fund to help cities recover from and prepare for the increase in extreme weather events, and he challenged the new graduates to lead the way in fighting against global warming. I'm just glad he's calling out the liars for what they are. Liars. You tell me lies, lies, lies. Sweet little lies. When I can't unbear the truth. You tell me lies, lies, lies. Sweet little lies. Help me make them all come true. Tell me that the rain won't fall today. First of all, let me say that in an era of rapid global warming, Maryland, our state of Maryland, for the past 10 years has been on a steady path of transitioning off of climate changing fossil fuels. That's the good news. But in the past six months, a radical detour has been proposed for our state. Now, who is proposing this detour? It's a company called Dominion Resources, based in Richmond, Virginia. Dominion wants Maryland to not build wind farms and solar rooftop arrays, but to build one of the biggest single fossil fuel energy facilities ever constructed in our state. This $3.8 billion facility would take 770 million cubic feet of fracked gas from across Appalachia, 
pipe it to a place called Cove Point in southern Maryland, liquefy it to about 270 degrees below zero, put it in thousand foot long tanker refrigeration ships, and send it to Asia where it would be revaporized, piped again, and burned in India and Japan. Now, we're at a crossroads in Maryland. In the next six or seven months, we have to decide as a state, are we going to stay the course with bigger and better clean energy development? Or are we going to take a radical detour? First of all, where is all this gas going to come from? From here, from the Marcellus Shale, from new and rapidly expanding drilling using the process we all know and we're all familiar with now, hydraulic fracturing or fracking. You drill down a mile deep, you drill another mile horizontally, then you set off underground explosions in the pipe. The pipe shrapnel literally punctures the rock. You pump down millions of gallons of water with chemicals and sand, and then you pump up the gas. I think most of us have heard about all the attendant problems that come with te this technique, and they include carcinogenic chemicals used in the drilling process, the confirmed triggering of earthquakes from drilling water reinjection, and of course, flammable tap water in numerous areas adjacent to drilling. But one statistic I want to focus on in particular is the US EPA's estimate that about 1.4% of all the natural gas, also known as methane, produced from the fracking process actually escapes into the atmosphere. This is important because according to the Nobel Prize winning Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, methane is 28 times more powerful at trapping heat in the atmosphere than CO2 over a 100 year time frame. 28 times worse. Pound for pound than the CO2 that comes out of the coal plant smokestack. So the more gas that you drill, you store, and you pipe, the more is leaking. And it's all designed to get that gas from the Marcellus Shale. And where's it going to wind up? A small coastal area called Cove Point in Calvert County in Southern Maryland. Now, if you've never been to Cove Point, it's right on the Chesapeake Bay. Here's the nearby town of Solomon's Island. It's like a little slice of New England. Here is nearby Calvert Cliff State Park. And here's the lovely lighthouse right on the tip of Cove Point. These energy intensive industrial scale facilities would pollute the local community with 552 tons of nitrogen oxide a year and 4.6 tons of sulfur dioxide. According, These are Dominion's own numbers, which of course create smog. So the air pollution in Calvert County is going to get worse. Then also toxins like mercury and acid gases would have to be stripped out of the natural gas and either stored in Calvert County or trucked across our state and put somewhere else. But perhaps the most astounding fact of all is that the entire liquefaction plant, according to Dominion's own numbers, would generate 3.3 million tons of planet warming CO2 per year. That would make this plant itself the fourth largest source of greenhouse gases in the entire state. Worse than four of our current coal-fired power plants. But we're not done. This liquefied gas now has to get to Asia. Dominion would pour it onto at least 90 refrigeration tankers like this, a thousand feet long, coming into the mouth of the bay, burning heavy crude, dumping billions of gallons of ballast water into the sea and the surrounding bay, and then turning around and making the six and seven thousand mile trips 
back to Japan and India respectively. These are Dominion has already sold contracts. They've already sold this Appalachian gas to companies in Japan and India. From there, it would be revaporized and pumped by energy intensive compressor stations and through pipes to the final end users in New Delhi and Tokyo where our Appalachian gas, long traveling gas, is finally lit on fire for energy use. Really? <laughs> when you add it all up, Dominion's co-point liquefaction facility for frac gas would trigger more global warming pollution than any other process or facility in the entire state of Maryland. More than all of our seven existing coal-fired power plants combined. Now, does it make us environmental radicals to say no to this? Fracking, earthquakes, flammable tap water, piping, compressing, liquefying, tankering to Asia, revaporizing, more piping, then finally lighting our Appalachian gas on fire in Asia. What could possibly be more radical than this? So it probably should not surprise any of us that Dominion doesn't even want to do a comprehensive environmental impact statement for its co-point liquefaction plant. If Dominion's fracking plus liquefaction plant is so good for the environment, so clean, then why in the world would they be afraid of an environmental impact statement? So here's the Marcellus Shale, here are all the other basins. And all of these shale formations, again, contain gas. And I ask you, why would anyone believe that the same won't happen here? What are we in favor of instead of co-point? And the answer is doubling, doubling our state's wind and solar generation by the year 2025. Not only is this doable, it will also create more jobs for Maryland, construction and permanent jobs, than fracking and liquefying at Cove Point could ever do. In the year 2013, in a 400 parts per million atmosphere, why in the world are we talking about bringing to the surface nearly a billion cubic feet of gas and sending it to Asia at the virtual carbon equivalent of coal? Why are we even having this conversation? If we build this Cove Point liquefied natural gas plant, we will all hear the great audible cry in our conscience of future generations asking us why. Why didn't you protect us when you could, when you had the facts? So we are at a crossroads. We have to choose now. There's no sea level rise that comes with wind power. Plus, you get the jobs. There's no Hurricane Sandy that comes with solar power. Plus, you get the jobs. This is our future. Clean energy, not co-point. Thank you very much. My father stay up, look this way, and now I know. Yes, didn't they know? No clever words we have to say, and now I know. Yes, didn't they know? You 
You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, stop fracked gas exports, Cove Point and beyond. Keystone gets most of the climate-based publicity. It was the first truly successful rallying point of our generation in that environmental activists were able to make it a household name and an issue that actually graces the lips of the corporate news media. The downside to widespread opposition to one project is that other potentially devastating plans like expanded fracking exports at Cove Point in Maryland, just around the corner from the nation's capital, get lost in the shuffle, also in the complete apathy, if not paid for ignorance, of major outlets. Well, the Chesapeake Climate Action Network, my old stomping grounds, don't shy away from the less famous projects. Bolstered by support from 350.org, CCAN is leading the charge against Cove Point. They have drawn attention during the public comment period and on July 13th are taking their public comments to the Capitol to be heard in person. Mike Tidwell, CCAN's executive director, compares the potential devastation of Cove Point to Keystone because both are export facilities with major safety concerns that increase emissions simply to open new channels for the fossil fuel industry. Basically, the only Americans benefiting from the project would be CEO types who can afford to live far away from the impact. You can join the first national rally to stop fracked gas exports at Cove Point and beyond in Washington, D.C. on Sunday, July 13th from 12.30 p.m. to 4 p.m. CCAN is gathering west of the Capitol Reflecting Pool, which is bordered by 3rd Street and between Pennsylvania Avenue and Maryland Avenue. More information is, of course, available at the CCAN Facebook page and at ChesapeakeClimate.org. The president has given his implied and overt seals of approval for fracking in the State of the Union and energy speeches since his inauguration. We cannot assume that he or the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission will put our health and safety above the interests of the oil and gas industries as they push to expand fracking. The CCAN call to action drives home all the reasons why you should be at the Capitol if you can get there and help to signal boost the protest online. On Sunday, July 13th, fracking fighters everywhere, movement leaders like Tim DeChristopher and Sandra Steingraber, mothers fending off compressor stations, fathers fighting pipelines, and everyday people demanding solutions to climate change will march together by the thousands. We'll call on President Obama and FERC to reject a gas export disaster at Cove Point and beyond, and instead redouble investments in the wind, solar, and energy efficiency technologies that will support good jobs and a stable climate for all. Tag Best of the Left from the protests with pictures and updates. Tell us why you support Smarter Energy and let CCAN, 350.org, and other tireless organizers know you stand with them. Activism. Come on out from in front of the television. Bust out of your self-imposed media prison. There's a whole big world out there, y'all. And some serious stuff is going down. Civil war intolerance, AIDS obliteration, the usual madness but not enough frustration about what's troubling Earth's nations. The spotlight will not be your savior in these dark days, and it will not be your saving grace. Why not replace your dreams of gracing life's stage with action? Back in 2003, a few years before he died, I believe he died in 2008, uh, Studs Terkel was on my show, and he made this comment about hope dying last. Hope without hope? What's the alternative to it? It's despair. Yeah. <laughs> and despair means your head in the oven. Hope is what made this country be what it is. It yes. was hope that made the abolitionists fight slavery, you see, against yes. terrible odds. And it's hope through the years that helped create these laws that have 
given us some kind of civilized behavior, you see, and regulated those who would prey upon the helpless, you see. I picked up that title, by the way, from a Mexican farm worker. Her name was Jessie De La Cruz. She's long retired. And she says, in times when things are bleak and bewildering, we have a saying in Spanish, and the Spanish quote is, Restaurant muera al ultimo. It means hope dies last. As Turkle later pointed out, it's useful to face reality and then go from there without despair. In some cases, and in some ways, it's like a cancer diagnosis. Most people handle tough news better than they think they will, and everybody has, or should have, the right to know what reality is. Which brings us to a discussion around the realities of climate change. Last week on this show, I had Guy McPherson on as a guest, a professor of ecology at, at uh, Emeritus at Arizona State University, and he had some terrifying things to take to say about the future of the planet check this out we are experiencing a warmed and warming planet it's difficult for me to imagine there will be habitat for human beings in the not too distant future um, consider for example that methane leaking out of the arctic ocean or bubbling out of the arctic ocean that one feedback alone um, contributes so greatly to planetary warming that incorporating just that single feedback um, indicates that it it can be as warm as 10 C warmer than baseline by 2040 and, 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 and we've we've never had humans on a planet more than three and a half C above baseline so you're predicting the end of humanity yes McPherson went on to say that it's over, that humanity as a species is going to largely die out, probably within our lifetime, certainly within our children's. His message is that it's too late to do anything about it, so we should do everything we can now to make life high quality, make life better before it all ends. On the other hand, Michael Mann, the famous climate scientist who came up with a hockey stick graph to show how carbon dioxide has been exploding as a result of industrial activity, says there's still time to do something to stop the climate freight train heading towards us. Here's what he had to say about this during an appearance on this show earlier in the week. This year, or actually last year, for the first time we passed the 400 parts per million mark. For the first time we think in millions of years. We've raised CO2 concentrations now through fossil fuel burning and other human activities to a level the planet hasn't seen in millions of years. And we're adding about three parts per million a year. So if you do the math, we hit that 450 parts per million number in a matter of a couple decades. And we probably lock in at least two degrees Celsius and some very dangerous and potentially irreversible impacts on the planet. On the last debate of how long do we have before it's too late to really do anything is raging in the background of the scientific community right now. It frankly needs more public discussion. We need to prepare ourselves for the worst. Think of it this way. An old and dear friend of mine died a few months ago of cancer and made the mistake of never believing seriously that his end was coming, and thus he went out basically screaming, No! It wasn't pretty. I mean, he was so angry his wife had to have him taken to hospice. On the other hand, my dad, who died of the same type of cancer, was ready for it, embraced it, and died at home surrounded by family. While the very end was rough for my dad, he had a pretty good last year experiencing life, family, and love while waiting for that cancer to take him down. 
I don't think that all the tipping points that Guy McPherson brings up are yet irreversible, and I believe there's still a lot we can do to save the planet. I agree more with Michael Mann that we still have some time to fix things. But it's still, as Mann points out, going to be damn hard to get the political will going here in the United States or worldwide. And even using Mann's conservative numbers, we'll be at Guy's point of no return in three decades or less. Now, motivation strategies must contain two parts, moving away from pain and moving toward pleasure. The former, touch a stove and jerk back, provokes a quick response, but doesn't last very long. The latter, moving toward pleasure, is very long-lasting, like setting goals and working toward them through your life, but it provokes a much slower and gentler response. Therefore, the most effective motivation strategies start with pain and then move to pleasure. It's time for us to acknowledge the painful reality that we've already severely damaged our planet in ways that could just possibly, and almost certainly if we do nothing, ways that could mean the end of humanity, or at the least, the end of human civilization. From that starting point, as something that we want to work as hard as we can to avoid, we must then envision a new and better world that's not based on carbon as an energy source and put into place real-world ways to get there quickly, ways that actually will improve the quality of life on our planet. As Stud Sturkel said, hope dies last. We're all working on it in our own ways. If we all toss in our efforts and push our politicians hard, we will get there. It's Colin from Cleveland. Just listened to the last few episodes. And uh, I have to say, Wade. Hey, Jay, it's Wade again. Wow. Quite a response. Obviously, I have a, a very significant interest in Iraq. And I'm pretty pissed off right now. To kind of tie in what he said about Iraq and about reparations. And, and they don't deserve what's going on over there. And it's all our fault. It's all America's fault. And you want to talk about reparations? Yeah, that's where they should go. I think it's great that he said that possibly Iraq should consider some reparations. What Wade's doing is what a lot of people in this country need to do. And it's looking in the mirror and accepting that everything we do isn't perfect, isn't flawed, and is right and justified. I know Wade was in the service, and I know he served proudly. And that's what a soldier does. And that's great. I don't nullify any soldier for doing what they were told. They're just pawns in the game, like we all are, unfortunately. But now that his service is over, Wade has actually taken the forward-thinking position of reflecting and seeing what the reason and what the results of his actions were. And this is what people in this country need to do, primarily all these right-wing chicken hawks who want us to go back to war. Even though so many guys died over there and so much American blood was spilled, it was supposed to be for this democratic fucking ideology. Even that, I'm still saying I don't want to go back because I don't trust the U.S. government to do it right. These are people who don't reflect in the mirror, don't care. They just, it, it's, it's an arrogance that they misname American exceptionally. And I'd have to say, I think what Wade is doing by reflecting on his actions and trying to improve 
situations in the future, Wade is showing the exemplary idea of what we're exceptional. It's part of the fact that we constantly change and we constantly evolve, all with the purpose of trying to be and do better. Jay, I love the show. Hello, Jay. Uh, my name is uh, David from North Carolina, and I didn't really think I'd ever call this line, but I heard uh, Wade's message, and uh, I couldn't help but think that I'm especially experienced. To address Wade's message, I, too, was deployed uh, to, to various combat theaters, and I'll get into that in more detail, but uh, to first address Wade's claim that... Uh, <laughs> The Iraqi war was the biggest fuck-up in history. This has got to be the most epic fuck-up in the history of mankind. The invasion of Iraq. Uh, no. No, it was not. And, and I strongly encourage Wade to, to do some more research and, and to learn some more history. I think that, and, and I don't mean this to... to insult his experiences at all, but I think that the Iraqi war was the biggest fuck-up in history that he was directly involved in, and I think as far as uh, the comment that he made. Does anybody realize that the same people we were supporting with weapons in Syria are now using the same weapons against the Shias in Iraq, and we're all upset about it now? Yeah, yeah. I guarantee you that there are a lot of defense contractors that recognize that, and there are a lot of other people that don't give a shit. And if I may uh, very briefly uh, quote Smedley Butler in detail, uh, he once said, I spent 33 years and four months in active military service, and during that period I spent most of my time as a high-class muscle man for big business for Wall Street and the bankers. In short, I was a racketeer, a gangster for capitalism. I helped make Mexico, and especially Tampico, safe for American oil interests. In 1914, I helped make Haiti and Cuba a decent place for national city bank boys to collect revenues, and I helped in the raping of half a dozen Central American republics for the benefit of Wall Street. I helped purify Nicaragua for the international banking house of the Brown Brothers in 1902. I brought light in the Dominican Republic just right for the American group companies. And in China in 1927, I helped see to it that Standard Oil went on its way unmolested. Looking back on it, Smedley Butler said, I might have given Al Capone a few hints. Uh, it's nothing new, Wade. Unfortunately, it's kind of the game that we've always played. It goes back further than, than we can imagine. It, uh, I think it goes back further than we choose to remember. And I would recommend that you start your reading with the end of World War II and the uh, decimation of the Ottoman Empire. And, uh, Jay, this is where it gets personal, because at one point Wade talked about handing out candy to kids in Mosul. You know, I've walked the streets of Mosul. I've handed out candy to kids in Mosul. I've walked the streets of Mosul and Tikrit, Baji, and Samara. I secured the streets of Mosul 
the end of 2005, the Iraqi elections, we lost men in Tikrit. I remember walking through downtown Baji as it was set alight on fire from a J-Dam that was dropped earlier that day. I played the military game myself, and I have to defend Wade. Wade talks about handing out candy to kids. Yeah, I did that too. And I did it with all of my mental faculties in suspended animation. See, I handed out candy to kids because I recognized that with a group of kids around my patrol, we were less likely to get hit. That was what I did. My unit traipsed around Iraq to the extent that I lost count of the amount of cities that we operated in. But I remember the kids. Those Iraqi kids were just kids. Just kids just like any other kids. And those people I met, they were nice. Yeah, anybody would have got along with them. But I remember the kids to the extent that every time I pulled out those Jolly Ranchers, I procured a certain amount of safety. And that's a horrible thing to say. But I did it, and I can live with it. Hello, Jay. Daniel Platt from Albany, New York. I told up on calling. The Tuesday show put me over the edge. To Wade, I want to thank you for everything. For a positive spin on Iraq, maybe the only place I've seen it, go to the last episode of Common Sense of Dan Carlin, the guy who was talking about the Fourth Amendment in the Stone Show. I really hope you take a clip from it, but if you don't, he lays out the two best options we have. Either Obama gets hands-on and works out a partition plan drawn up by all the Arab states to fix what Britain and France did to colonize them after World War I, 100 years ago. Or go hands-off and wait for a natural consolidation to happen, like a United Arab States. Whatever you think of these, they are in the realm of change and not the same old bullshit. Wade is not alone in how he feels. I have a friend in the Tea Party here I've worked with, nicknamed Barr, like the gun. And he too served in Iraq. He and others are also angry and sad. Last year, he related to me the injustice that for the work soldiers do, whether being on guard duty for 12 hours straight or off on a day-long patrol, you are paid the same yearly salary, and it gets cut year to year. They did the math, and it worked out to an hourly wage of something like $2.50. I last saw him at the city council meeting uh, in Albany with some of his fellow Mets, and they were there to propose and ask for support for an Iraq war memorial. Usually in Albany, the vets themselves pay for it. But unlike, say, the Spanish-American War, there aren't enough of them to do that. But they had an idea. The city donates a bit of land, and they'll put one up. Not a gray monolith, but a flagpole, a plaque, and a pile of rocks. I'll explain that it's one brightly colored rock for each man left behind. And the encouragement of anyone to add a rock for anyone they wish to memorialize. I think it's a great idea. When the fight is over and the dust settles, it's amazing how we can change with time. Have you seen Glenn Beck apologize yet? To say the left was right all along on Iraq. It's 
really something to see. In spite of the things that I felt at the time when we went into war, liberals said we shouldn't get involved. They said we shouldn't get mired in another foreign mess. We shouldn't nation build. And besides, there was no indication that the people of Iraq um, had the will to be free. I thought that was insulting at the time. Everybody wants to be free. They said we couldn't force freedom on people. You know what? Let me lead with my mistakes. You're right. Liberals, you were right. When Wade said he felt for the first time, he was ashamed to be an American. And I'm sorry to all the Iraqis. I, I'm sorry. I'm ashamed to be an American right now. And I mean that. And that hurts me to say it. I realized that for the first time in my shorter life that I wanted to support the troops. How cruel of me. How ironic. It's like the world has turned upside down. And it should. The few in power shouldn't be. And those of us beaten down and had control taken from us, even if we ever had it, should be in charge. Not that power over others, but for us. And for all the bad news out there, things are changing. It feels like we are moving backwards. We focus on the national news stories that Jake covers. And it's important to be on top of them. But just as he usually ends the show with something hopeful. As Stud Sturkle said, hope dies last. We're all working on it in our own ways. If we all toss in our efforts and push our politicians hard, we will get there. Beyond the sensational, something more is built. It may take you, the listener, to cut down your 40-hour work week down or face something uncomfortable to be a part of this change. But I believe more are doing so. The world is turning. It's a new day. And I'm pumped for it. I think you should be too. Thank you. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped get the clips to make the show possible. Thanks to Katie Klobuzik for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. So it is official. The fundraiser is over. I'm very happy to say that we we met our goal. Spoiler alert, we met the goal. Uh, the way it happened, though, was interesting. The night before the last day, we had not yet reached our goal. And then when I woke up the next morning, I had already reached the goal and surpassed it by like $500. And now, you know, just a, a day or two later, a couple, uh, you know, final donations came in and it went to almost uh, more than $1,400 above the goal. So just as predicted, a bunch of people swooped in right at the last minute, helped push it over the edge and, and well beyond. So our grand total ended up at $16,455. Which to me, I mean, it, it, it's exciting. It's helpful. I mean, the money is necessary, but also it's a ringing endorsement of the idea. So uh, I'm happy to say that I'm already in the beginning stages of sort of working out the details of how to build this app and, and get it all working. So, um, you know, I'll, I'll get to work on that and you guys sit tight and I'll let you know what happens. I have a ton more people to thank. I'll be definitely be getting to that in uh, you know episodes coming up. Uh, you know, I just got swamped by all the names that came in and haven't had time to process them yet. But I'll be getting everyone's you know shirts and sweatshirts sent out and everyone thanked on the show. Uh, so no need to worry. But that'll be coming up in uh, you know future episodes. So that's going to be it for today. Thanks everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher and donating 
donating your accounts at donateyouraccount.com slash bestofleft. Stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter, and for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information is always available in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every fourth day during our summer hours from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a crying shame How we get so trained We can't see past our own sad stories And wonder what we're missing We can't see past